Section 10 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 12, American Leaders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Daniel Webster, Part 2. Webster's financial speeches are very calm, like the papers of Hamilton and Jay in The Federalist, but as interesting and persuasive as those of Gladstone, the greatest finance minister of modern times. They are plain, simple, direct, without much attempt at rhetoric. He spoke like a great lawyer to a bench of judges. The solidity and soundness of his views made him greatly respected and were remarkable in a young man of thirty-four. The subsequent financial history of the country shows that he was prophetic. All his predictions have come to pass. What is more marked in our history than the extravagance and speculation attending the expansion of paper money irredeemable in gold and silver? What misery and disappointment have resulted from inflated values? It was doubtless necessary to do without gold and silver in our life and death struggle with the South, but it was nevertheless a misfortune, seen in the gambling operations and the wild fever of speculation which tended the immense issue of paper money after the war. The bubble was sure to burst, sooner or later, like John Law's Mississippi scheme in the time of Louis Fifteenth. How many thousands thought themselves rich in New York and Chicago? in fact everywhere, when they were really poor, as any man is poor when his house or farm is not worth the mortgage. As soon as we returned to gold and silver, or it was known we should return to them, then all values shrunk, and even many a successful merchant found he was really no richer than he was before the war. It had been easy to secure heavy mortgages on inflated values, and also to get a great interest on investments. But when these mortgages and investments shrank to what they were really worth, the holders of them became embarrassed and impoverished. The fit of commercial intoxication was succeeded by depression and unhappiness, and the moral evils of inflated values were greater than the financial, since of all demoralizing things the spirit of speculation and gambling brings, at last, the most dismal train of disappointments and miseries. Inflation and uncertainty in values, whether in stocks or real estate, alternating with the return of prosperity, seem to have marked the commercial and financial history of this country during the last fifty years, more than that of any other nation under the sun, and given rise to the spirit of extravagant speculations, both disgraceful and ruinous. Equally remarkable were Mr. Webster's speeches on tariffs and protective industries. He here seemed to borrow from Alexander Hamilton, who is the father of our protective system. Here he cooperated with Henry Clay, and the result of his eloquence and wisdom on those great principles of political economy was the adherence to a policy, against great opposition, which built up New England and did not impoverish the West. Where would the towns of Lowell, Manchester, and Lawrence have been without the aid extended to manufacturing interests? They made the nation comparatively independent of other nations. They enriched the country, even as manufacturers enriched Great Britain and France. What would England be if it were only an agricultural country? It would have been impossible to establish manufactures of textile fabrics without protection. Without aid from governments, this branch of American industry would have had no chance to contend with the cheap labor of European artisans. I do not believe in cheap labor. I do not believe in reducing intelligent people to the condition of animals. I would give them the chance to rise, and they cannot rise if they are doomed to labor for a mere pittance. The more wages men can get for honest labor, the better is the condition of the whole country. 
withdraw protection from infant industries and either they perish or those who work in them sink to the condition of the laboring classes of europe nor do i believe it is a good thing for a nation to have all its eggs in one basket i would not make this country exclusively agricultural because we have boundless fields and can raise corn cheap any more than i would recommend a minnesota farmer to raise nothing but wheat insects and mildews and unexpected heats may blast a whole harvest and the farmer has nothing to fall back on he may make more money for a time by raising wheat exclusively but he impoverishes his farm he should raise cattle and sheep and grass and vegetables as well as wheat or corn then he is more independent and more intelligent even as a nation is by various industries which call out all kinds of talent i know that this is a controverted point everything is controverted in political economy there is scarcely a question which is settled in its whole range of subjects and i know that many intellectual and enlightened men are in favor of what they call free trade especially professors in colleges but there is no such thing as free trade strictly in any nation or in the history of nations no nation legislates for universal humanity on philanthropic principles it legislates for itself there is no country where there are not high duties on some things not even england no nation can be governed on abstract principles and in disregard of its necessities when it was for the interest of england to remove duties on corn in order that manufactures might be stimulated they took off duties on corn because the laboring classes in the mills had to be fed agricultural interests gave way for a time to manufacturing interests because the wealth of the country was based on them rather than on lands and because landlords did not anticipate that breadstuffs brought from this country would interfere with the value of their rents but england with all her proud and selfish boasts about free trade may yet have to take a retrograde course like france and prussia or her landed interests may be imperiled the english aristocracy who rule the country cannot afford to have the value of their lands reduced one half for those lands are so heavily mortgaged that such a reduction of value would ruin them nor will they like to be forced to raise vegetables rather than wheat and turn themselves into market gardeners instead of great proprietors the landlords of great britain may yet demand protection from themselves and as they control parliament they will look out for themselves by enacting measures of protection unless they are intimidated by the people who demand cheap bread or unless they submit to revolution it is eternal equity and wisdom that the weak should be protected there may be industries strong enough now to dispense with protection but unless they are assisted when they are feeble they will cease to exist at all take our shipping for instance with foreign ports it is not merely crippled it is almost annihilated is it desirable to cut off that great arm of national strength shall we march on to our destiny blind and lame and halt what will we do if england and other countries shall find it necessary to protect themselves from impoverishment and reintroduce duties on breadstuffs high enough to make the culture of wheat profitable where then will our farmers find a market for their superfluous corn except to those engaged in industries which we should crush by removing protection i maintain that mr webster in defending our various industries with so much ability for the benefit of the nation on the whole rendered very important services even as hamilton and clay did although the solid south wishing cheap labor and engaged exclusively in agriculture was opposed to him the independent south would have established free trade as mr calhoun advocated and as any enlightened statesman would advocate 
when any interest can stand alone and defy competition as was the case with the manufacturers of great britain fifty years ago the interests of the south and those of the north under the institution of slavery were not identical indeed they had been in fierce opposition for more than fifty years mr webster was in his arguments on tariffs and cognate questions the champion of the north as mr calhoun was of the south and this opposition and antagonism gave great force to webster's eloquence at the time his sentences are short interrogative idiomatic he is intensely in earnest he grapples with sophistries and scatters them to the winds both reason and passion vivify him this was the period of webster's greatest popularity as the defender of northern industries this made him the idol of the merchants and manufacturers of new england he made them rich no wonder they made him presents they ought in gratitude to have paid his debts over and over again what if he did in straitened circumstances accept their aid they owed to him more than he owed to them and with all their favor and bounty webster remained poor he was never a rich man but always an embarrassed man because he had expensive tastes like cicero at rome and bacon in england this truly was not to his credit it was a flaw in his character it involved him in debt created enemies and injured his reputation it may have lessened his independence and it certainly impaired his dignity but there were also patriotic motives which prompted him and which kept him poor had he devoted his great talents exclusively to the law he might have been rich but he gave his time to his country his greatest services to his country however were as the defender of the constitution here he soared to the highest rank of political fame here he was a statesman having in view the interests of the whole country he never was what we call a politician he never was such a miserable creature as that i mean a mere politician whose calling is the meanest a man can follow since it seeks only spoils and is a perpetual deception incompatible with all dignity and independence whose only watchword is success not such was webster he was too proud and too dignified for that form of degradation and he perhaps sacrificed his popularity to his intellectual dignity and the glorious consciousness of being a national benefactor as a real statesman seeks to be and is when he falls back on elemental principles of justice and morality like a late premier of england one of the most conscientious statesmen that ever controlled the destinies of a nation webster like burke was haughty austere and brave but such a man is not likely to remain the favorite of the people who prefer an alcibiades to a cato except in great crises when they look to a man who can save them and whom they can forget i cannot enumerate the magnificent bursts of eloquence which electrified the whole country when webster stood out as the defender of the constitution when he combated secession and defended the union how noble and gigantic he was when he answered the aspersions of the southern orators great men as they were and elaborately showed that the union meant something more than a league of sovereign states the great leaders of secession were overthrown in a contest which they courted and in which they expected victory his reply to hayne is perhaps the most masterly speech in american political history is one of the immortal orations of the world extorting praise and admiration from americans and foreigners alike in his various encounters with hayne mcduffie and calhoun he taught the principles of political union to the rising generation he produced those convictions which sustained the north in its subsequent contest to preserve the integrity of the nation there can be no estimate of the services he rendered to the country by those grand and patriotic efforts 
but for these the people might have succumbed to the sophistries of calhoun for he was almost as great a giant as webster and was more faultless in his private life he had an immense influence he ruled the whole south he made it solid the speeches of webster in the senate made him the oracle of the north he was not only the great champion of the north and of northern interests but he was the teacher of the whole country he expounded the principles of the constitution that this great country is one to be forever united in all its parts that its stars and stripes were to float over every city and fortress in the land from the atlantic to the pacific from the river st lawrence to the gulf of mexico and bearing for their motto no such miserable interrogatory as what are all these worth nor those other words of delusion and folly liberty first and union afterwards but that other sentiment dear to every american heart liberty and union now and forever one and inseparable it was after his memorable speech in reply to hayne that i saw webster for the first time i was a boy in college and he had come to visit it and well do i remember the unbounded admiration yea the veneration felt for him by every young man in that college and throughout the town indeed throughout the whole north for he was the pride and glory of the land it was then that they called him godlike looking like an olympian statue or one of the creations of michelangelo when he wished to represent majesty and dignity and power in repose the most commanding human presence ever seen in the capitol at washington when we recall those patriotic and noble speeches which were read and admired by every merchant and farmer and lawyer in the country and by which he produced great convictions and taught great lessons we cannot but wonder why his glory was dimmed and he was pulled down from his pedestal and became no longer an idol it is affirmed by many that it was his famous seventh of march speech which killed him which disappointed his friends and alienated his constituents i am therefore compelled to say something about that speech and of his history at the time mr webster was doubtless an ambitious man he aspired to the presidency and why not it is and will be a great dignity such as ought to be conferred on great ability and patriotism was he not able and patriotic had he not rendered great services was he not universally admired for his genius and experience and wisdom who was more prominent than he among the statesmen of the country or more thoroughly fitted to fulfil the duties of that high office was it not natural that he should have aspired to be one of the successors of washington and adams and jefferson he comprehended the honor and the dignity of that office he did not seek it in order to divide its spoils or to reward his friends but he did wish to secure the highest prize that could be won by political services he did desire to receive the highest honor in the gift of the people even as cicero sought the consulate at rome he did believe himself capable of representing the country in its most exacting position it is nothing against a man that he is ambitious provided his ambition is lofty most of the illustrious men of history have been ambitious cromwell pitt thiers guizot bismarck but ambitious to be useful to their country as well as to receive its highest rewards webster failed to reach the position he desired because of his enemies and possibly from jealousy of his towering height just as clay failed and aaron burr and alexander hamilton and stephen douglas and william h seward the politicians who control the people prefer men in the presidential chair whom they think they manage and use not those to whom they will be forced to succumb webster was not a man to be controlled or used and so the politicians rejected him this he deeply felt and even resented 
His failure saddened his latter days and embittered his soul, although he was too proud to make loud complaints. I grant he did not here show magnanimity. He thought that the presidency should be given to the ablest and most experienced statesmen. He did not appear to see that this proud position is too commanding to be bestowed except for the most exalted services, and such services as attract the common eye, especially in war. Presidents in so great a country as this reign, like the old feudal kings, by the grace of God. They are selected by divine providence, as David was from the sheepfold. No American, however great his genius, except the successful warrior, can ever hope to climb to this dizzying height, unless personal ambition is lost sight of in public services. This is wisely ordered, to defeat unscrupulous ambition. It is only in England that a man can rise to supreme power by force of genius, since he is selected virtually by his peers, and not by the popular voice. He who leads Parliament is the real King of England for the time, since Parliament is omnipotent. Had Webster been an Englishman, and as powerful in the House of Commons as he was in Congress at one time, he might have been Prime Minister. But he could not be President of the United States, although presidential power is much inferior to that exercised by an English Premier. It is the dignity of the office, not its power, which constitutes the value of the presidency. And Webster loved dignity even more than power. End of section 10